Galatians chapter 4, verse 8 through 20. And it says, But in the past, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. But now, since you know God, or rather have become known by Him, how can you turn back again to the weak and bankrupt elemental forces? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? You observe special days, months, seasons, and years. I am fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. I beg you, brothers, become like me, for I also became like you. You have not wronged me. You know that previously I preached the gospel to you because of a physical illness. You did not despise or reject me, though my physical condition was a trial for you. On the contrary, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ himself. Jesus himself. What happened to the sense of being blessed you had? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? They are enthusiastic about you, but not for any good. Instead, they want to isolate you, so you will become enthusiastic about them. Now it is always good to be enthusiastic about good, and not just when I am with you. My children, I am again suffering labor pains, for you until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice because I don't know what to do about you. Well, shall we uh, ask the Lord's blessing on the message this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for the truth it gives to us. Thank you for revealing to us and helping us to understand how to look at the whole picture. And Father, I just pray that you would help us to remember and to be reminded, especially when Paul looks at these Galatians who had turned back and were not following after you to those things that enslaved. Father, maybe a lesson, a reminder to us to evaluate in our own lives if something is preventing us from serving and following after you. So God, I just pray that you would teach us, allow us to be moved by your spirit, and may we truly obey your commands. In Jesus' name we ask it, amen. So this morning as we look at, the first thing we want to look at is the position of the Galatians. In verses 8 through 11, we have the position of the Galatians. So we're going to look at the position of the Galatians, and then also the position of Paul. And so go ahead and advance that slide. And we have the position of the Galatians in verses 8 through 11. As we see verses 8 through 11, it mentions and says, But then indeed when you did not know God, you served these which by nature are not gods. And just to give you a, a little bit of background, go to the next slide. We see mentioned in last week and what takes place is that as uh, talking about sons and heirs, a reminder that in positionally in Christ. Remember, you are sons and daughters of God, and so therefore there is an inheritance. There is blessing, there is benefit as children of God. And so we arrive at verse 8, and all of a sudden, think about it. Remember, before you knew, before you were a believer, where were you at? So the next slide says, in the past, in verse 8, you did not know God. You did not know God. You were in, enslaved to things that were not God's. And the only reason it's in a different font because I could not find a lowercase g. I always have an issue of writing whenever it's not God to write God's little g with a little g. And it's just how I am. I'm OC about that. But I try not to do that. So I found a different font with a little g. 
so your sp spaces are, did not know God. Because before they were a believer, they didn't know God. If you remember back in Romans 1, and it talks about how the world didn't know who God was. There was a revelation. There was evidence of who God was in creation, in design, in order. And, uh, but must understand that they didn't know God. And then also they were enslaved to things that were not God's. And in, in the text it says here, you serve those which by nature are not God's, or the power of God. If, if we think about those things that had no power to save, little g. They were a slave to sin and living without purpose. But as we look at the world today even, we can look at people who are serving and following after a power, and while it's not a God that they bow down to, it is a power that uh, they believe that, oh, will bring them benefit. But it does not have the power to save. And that's where Paul expresses that enslaved to things that were not God's, little g, in the sense that, remember a deity. The whole reason to follow after someone because they both have authority, but also they have the power to help those who are those subservient to them, such as a king. You might follow after a king because you have to, but also the king provides you protection. The king provides you. You might, uh, even our government, as we look at it, there are certain benefits. And so here, they were enslaved to things that were not little g, gods. They had no power to save them. And so even deities, as in the Roman, Greek, Greco-Roman time, they may have offered sacrifices and idols. But that's in the past. So remember, this is where you were in the past. And all of a sudden now, Paul says, okay, in the present, in verse 9, he states and says, but now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, and so positionally in the present, the Galatians, they know God. Okay, they know there is a true and living God, the God who is distinct from any others. And especially in the Jewish uh, culture, they were throughout historically interesting that they only served one God. They were monotheistic. Throughout their history, sometimes they brought in other idols, other gods, it depends, especially as we see in the divided kingdom in the Old Testament, they followed after this god, they followed after the Midianites, they followed after different gods. But as we look thematically throughout the Old Testament, it was serve God and God alone, the one true God. In Egypt, we see the difference where they served after many different gods. But now they know that there is one true and living God. And we see even expressed throughout Scripture where it says, now I know you are the one true living God. Different times the Bible expresses that. But also known by God. And the expression there is that now there is a, a personal faith in Christ. As we think about the act of salvation, you know, the two parts, and even coming into be known, the relational aspect. You can each say, uh, if you think of someone famous, uh, just uh, if you think of someone who is famous or popular, um, you could think of a, a basketball player or a football player and or someone who's well-known by the world. I, I remember at a time where Michael Jordan was considered one of the most famous individuals known by face in the world, not just in the U.S., but if they saw them uh, in another country, it was Michael Jordan. That was the, the figure. You could say, oh, I know Michael Jordan. Do you, how many? Do you know any... Raise your hand. Do you know who Michael Jordan is? Even some of you younger people, you know who Michael Jordan is, the basketball legend. Okay. 
But if you were to go up and uh, ask Michael Jordan, does he know who you are? You know, relation. Oh, do you know so and so? No. You know, they probably haven't heard of us. You know, they would say, "Who is that?" And so, relationally, as we understand, it's one thing to know Michael Jordan, but also to have Michael Jordan be known by us, someone famous. But here, God, known by God, He is known by us. We are His children, and the fact that God, the Creator of this universe, the one who provided salvation, knows you individually, positionally. That is a benefit and a blessing because he cares about us. And sometimes we think God is too busy. God, the complexities of this world, how can he care about what, who I am or what I do? But he does. He knows you. And nothing is too difficult for him. And so as Paul expresses to the Galatians, guess what? In the present, you are known, known by God, personal faith in God. And then Paul expresses you are in the process of turning back. In verse 9, we see here, it says that you are turning again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage. So we see you have a couple B's here as we look at, but turning back to the beginning. Turning back to the beginning, and the beginning is where you were before. Why are you going back to the beginning? Sometimes if you are a famous, uh, all I can think of is the Nigo Montoya from the Princess Bride. He says, I'm going back to the beginning. When you don't know what to do, you go back to where you started, right? Go back to the beginning. But these individuals, the Galatians, knew, knew better. And he says, you are going back to the beginning. You're turning back to the beginning where it, it was weak. No power to save or benefit their followers. Don't you understand? And you're turning back to the beggarly or bankrupt. And what that means is there were no benefits or spiritual riches to give to the Galatians except to slave, enslave. You're going back to those elements of the world, and they provide you no benefit. And those who are going back to the law, remember, there is no benefit to the law to follow after that. And then you're going back to bondage, which is the wrongful objects of faith. People say, oh, Christianity, you know, it's, it's a crutch. There is no object of faith. Well, remember that as we believe faith, believing in the object worthy of our trust, Faith in Christ does not depend upon our faith. Jesus always said, remember, you have faith of a mustard seed. It's not the amount of faith. It's where your faith is placed. And that is an important concept because often you hear other evangelists saying, oh, if you have enough faith, if you have enough faith, it'll come to pass. If you have enough faith, believe, 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 and it'll occur. But that's not necessarily true. You can be at a, at a restaurant and, you know, thinking, okay, I, I believe that I'm not going to get sick by eating this. You know, and so, but guess what? That just has no bearing on how much you believe. You know, if that person didn't wash their hands and all of a sudden you get to Ascaris lumbricoides or some of those round worms or flat worms, and you know what? You're, you're history. You're done for. So be careful. But the object of our faith is worthy of our trust. That's why, you know, oftentimes, oh, I'll go to this place. It has more reputable um, of a restrooms and, you know, that it's clean. And you try to go there, but it's the where you place your faith. And here, their faith was wrong. It was in the world. It was in, in mankind. And honestly, even as we look at it, humans, each of us will let one another down. Humanly speaking, that's how we are. But the bondage is that, oh, you are placing your faith in these elements that have no 
uh, record of being trustworthy. And before they knew Christ, they placed their faith and trust and become gods and lead to enslavement. And if you think about the world, when I say the world, as you think about the secular world, if you do not have Christ, what do you trust in? You trust in self. You trust in others. You trust in, in alcohol, in work, in education, physical appearance, health, food, recreation. Those are all elements that you, know, you trust for you. If, if you do not have a faith in Christ, well, you know, these are instruments for you, food and nutrition. Okay, I'm going to try to live the longest because I don't know how, how, how long I have to live. I'm going to trust in my efforts in this. I'm going to trust in my knowledge. And that's how people turn to these elements. But really what often happens is they become a source of bondage. They become, if you think about it, a law to themselves and give you that boundary that you need in order to, to survive, to make it through the day. But here, as we see, the other thing is turning back to the boundaries. What were the boundaries for the Jew? If you look at the Jewish boundary, it says here, Verse 10, you observe days, months, and seasons, and years. And what significance does it have that? What that is, is if you look at, um, you could, we could go back to numbers, but it talks about the monthly offerings and the Jewish religious calendar, the Sabbath, the fast or feast days, new moon observances. Hold your spot and go to Colossians 2.15. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Go over to Colossians 2, verse 15. And to give you context, I'll start in verse 13, where it says, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. And so just going back to they hold no significance. They hold no value in spiritual attainment or spiritual growth. Understanding these observations that you keep, they hold no benefit. And what that does is just gives you a boundary. And it's not saying don't live without boundaries, but these boundaries that enslave you. And sometimes we put in here, when we're coming from a uh, background, the Jewish background, they put in these boundaries that are to protect them. And sometimes they think that that provides benefit to them. If we look historically, even at the church, uh, modern there's believers who have placed a boundary of liturgical practices and the practice of confession, communion, and behavior within the church building as a measurable standard for one's spirituality and relationship with Christ and how you dress a certain way. And even in the, in the history of the church, Think about the Crusades. Think about all this. Oh, this was to really be a benefit, and this will help um, to, in your spiritual journey. I was thinking, even as we're reading some of the hymns and some of the songs, how many are really associated with going to battle 
for God. There's an action. There's a boundary. If I can do something, then that provides spiritual benefit, which is really contrary to the word of God where it says you can only do spiritual benefit through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, not in your own. And so these boundaries, looking at that. So it's important for us to understand that religious leaders and Christians who misinterpret the Bible to believe that while God provides salvation, it is the believer's responsibility themselves say, um, to keep themselves saved through one's own spiritual beneficial actions. Where it says, and they misinterpret, work out your own salvation. And so as we look at boundaries, sometimes as believers, we know ourselves, and so we want to put up these boundaries in churches, religious systems and practices, they put up these religious boundaries to help measure, okay, if you're living for Christ, you look this way. If you're not living for Christ, you're look, going to look this way. Well, we can't put on man's standards. Biblical standards are what is going to be reflected, the fruit of the Spirit. There is going to be a fruit and evidence that comes out, but it's inward focus that comes outward. If you think about it, you know, you're carrying something that's going to break, and if you drop it, it's going to open up. And what's outside, what's inside is going to come outside. Eventually, it'll be revealed. Let me just give you an example, a jawbreaker. How many of you ever had a jawbreaker when you were younger? A jawbreaker or a Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop? How many licks does it take to get to the inside of Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop? You know, if you eat the whole thing, eventually you're going to get to that Tootsie Roll center. But the whole point, you have to get to the outside first, where sometimes, there, to give you the uh, illustration, what often happens is, is sometimes it's just the outside. We, ju we just stay on the outside and we don't come to the measure of the inside. It's a Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop for a reason. And so eventually the fruit will come, but it's the fruit that is the important part. It's not to the outside. Because what distinguishes a Tootsie Roll Pop from a, from a lollipop is that there's something in the center. In the believer, there's something in the center that uh, will eventually show its way to the outside. Because sometimes carnality and those superficial Christians are just the candy on the outside. And you can lick it a few times, but if you just lick it and put it down, you've never gotten to the point of buying a, a Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop. And as a believer, you know, th the fruit will be evidence in your life. And that's the good part, you know. You want to get to that. Same way with the the, I said about the um, gobstopper or what do they call the jawbreaker. On the inside, there's that little funny uh, part on the inside that's softer that eventually breaks. But this is, as Paul says, don't turn back to these elements of the world. What are you trying to do? Look, you're going back to the superficial. Come back to what is the most important is the center and, and uh, not to the, what is confining you, enslaving you. And so Paul expresses in verse 11, he expresses a fear of wasted investment, of wasting, where he says, verse 11, I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Maybe you have put together a model, or maybe you've done, worked in a project. Uh, I was looking at this uh, gingerbread. Uh, there was a show where they're making gingerbread houses. And I know that some of you, you gingerbread, the Ronnings always have a competition with the gingerbread houses and families. Maybe you've done that. I've done that with teenagers and different groups. But what happens is you get all done. And there was this woman from um, North Carolina who made intricate designs and did all of this work. But then all of a sudden, stability-wise, she was afraid, oh, no, what happens is 
the project to leave that overnight. It has to be stable. But all the effort, all those hours of investment, can you imagine what happens, how you feel when you can't produce what you wanted? And that is uh, Paul expressing and saying, when you've invested in something and all of a sudden now you can't bring it to fruition or completion, there's a fear of a wasted investment. Now, the hard part is when you invest in someone else and then they decide, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. You're like, oh, come on. What is your problem? Don't you see this is important? And Paul is at that point. So now as we arrive, um, go to the next slide because uh, you missed that one. We'll be, we see the position of Paul, verses 12 through 20, and where he expresses the, really the past and the present. Because before we saw the past and the present of the Galatians, but now we see Paul, his position. Don't you realize? First of all, we see in verse 12, it says, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. So let me just stop there. And that doesn't give, and in studying this out, there was probably an infirmity. Some say, oh, it's eyesight. But there's also a visible infirmity. And if you think about someone who's got like a blister or boil, you're like, get away from me. I don't want to touch that. Or something disfiguring. You're kind of like, okay, step back a little bit because it is offensive. And this was something that may be, you know, I could, I could really go into gross detail about things that seep and weep working in surgery. Um, I talk about there's a certain cheese that um, I said sometimes when there's a cyst and you squeeze it out, it looks like that, not ricotta, ricotta, I don't want to. But a certain Kobe cheese that is um, excellent cheese and it pops out and it looks like that. <laughs> but it is offensive and you're like, oh my, that's gross. But this was something that would have been offensive to the people for two reasons, visually, but also secondarily because they may have thought, well, why do you have this issue? Is it a, a root of sin? Is this judgment that God is placing on you, Paul? And so first thing we see here is in this is that Paul was a friend. And Paul was a friend, and he's sharing his experience to them. He's saying, I am a friend of you. Remember, relationally, there, we are friends. And so the experience starts off, with, first of all, I am free. Become like me as I became like you. Remember, Paul left all of the restrictions that came with the Jewish culture. And he became like you. Remember, you are Gentile sinners, and you're not in spiritual bondage. But there's freedom in the relationship with Christ. There's freedom to, to understand even me offered to idols. There's freedom in that you do not have to place the restrictions of, of all these observances. And then also Paul shared the gospel with them. He shared the gospel with them. The initial preaching of the gospel, he says, was because of illness. He, he may have went there in Galatia. There was, um, throughout the cities, there were these springs, or there were these cities that were known for uh, the, um, as they were traveling through. There were some of, as we see, even spas. But there was places where Paul had come here, and for a reason, someone was taking care of him. But he came there because of an illness. And while the text doesn't clearly state, Paul shared the good news with them. He shared the gospel. And he was received warmly by them. It wasn't that, remember, he had this offensive uh, injury wound, but also they received him warmly. 
And while the illness may have been repulsive and even a trial, temptation, in 2 Corinthians 10.10, going back to to one couple pages in 2 Corinthians 10.10, it says, For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. And Paul presents, and he says even to the Corinthians back there, and as he presents the Galatians, says that this is not someone who is by presence like a Saul, one who is domineering. Paul was probably short and small of stature. He was educated, but it wasn't, oh, this guy is good looking. This was someone who on first appearance, you would not think of having the power, the boldness. He may have been that one at work where you think of the the small one who always uh, rats on other people and the the co-worker is like, oh, you know, kind of snide. But Paul here was used by God and he was received warmly by them. And then Paul brought blessing. In verse 14 and 15, it states and says that what then was a blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Paul brought blessing to them, and he was received as an angel or messenger. And even in the great affection and shown what the vocabulary that they used, calling him, it says, Paul elaborates and says, and expresses to them, um, 14, for my trial which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. And using those terms is an expression of how much honor they bestowed upon Paul. And it says that uh, they had deep affection. They felt toward him and satisfaction fulfillment was rendered because he brought the good news to them. And they had peace and joy in knowing. If, If I were to ask you, think about someone who shared the good news with you or someone who led you to Christ. There is a certain amount of affection you have for that individual and you hold them in a certain esteem because of what they've done what they've given to you and even young people you haven't lived long enough but to understand the gift of the gospel the significance of that but the meaningful the relational aspect with Jesus Christ to know that you can have peace to know that God is in control of your circumstances that it doesn't depend upon you to know that he has a plan and purpose for your life and that everything that occurs to you isn't just for punishment. Sure, you may be going through a fiery trial, but that there is purpose in that. That gives you great peace of understanding that God is always there and that he is ready to receive you. And who shared the good news with you and the feelings you have toward that individual. And Paul expresses to the Galatians, hey, I'm your friend. But then also, next he sees in verse, um, going down in verse 16, he says, oh, wait a second, I'm being now treated as an enemy. So we have the friend, the experience, but also now the enemy, the evaluation is that, hey, wait a second, an enemy. And in verse 16, it states and says, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous and a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. So advance that slide, and we have enemy. And if you were to evaluate how, who is an enemy, if 
because sometimes enemies, we know them as wolves in sheep's clothing for a false prophet. But there are those in your life, I'm sure, who have been friendly to you, but you found out there was no value to them. And if you were to look at the um, going back, does a true friend bring truth? Because an essential element of a true friend is that they bring you truth. And what I mean by that is sometimes a friend will tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. A friend will tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. Because there are those who, who, oh, sure, I'll be your friend when everything is going well, or they tell you, but when there is a significant moment in your life where maybe you're doing something wrong, a true friend will correct you, say, hey, you shouldn't do that. But then there's other who say they're your friends, and they'll just let you fall and then laugh because they really don't care. But here, Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, let me just give you a couple Versions. It's the one says, open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Then it says, better an open reprimand than concealed love. The wounds of a friend are trustworthy, but the kisses of an enemy are excessive. It can be given either way because they're going to be in number, and but also they are the one who are going to tell you, oh, you know, what you want to hear and lift you up until you're ready to fall. So the second thing we look at is, does a, does a true friend recruit, then exclude? And what do I mean by recruit, then exclude? They zealously court you, enthusiastic, exclude, then isolate you. I always think of the cheerleader. And what I mean by the cheerleader is sometimes there's a friend who's, who you have the mean cheerleader, who they're, they're friend to the outcast girl, you know, oh, we'll be your friend and then they're ready, and then they embarrass you, or maybe you have that friend who, who is befriends you, and then they use you, and then they move on to the next person. Sometimes relation. I know many of you women don't want to go back to high school and think about how, how tough high school is and how girls sometimes can be very mean. Women are very different from boys. Boys just hit each other, and then they're friends again. Uh, girls just are going to talk about you about to everyone else, and, uh, and then, you know, cause lots of problems but here we see the recruit then exclude these that are supposedly friends they zealously court you enthusiastic these were the teachers these were the ones who are speaking against Paul and these were the false teachers and they're in the church and saying hey Paul he's not really legitimate Paul doesn't care about you and they wanted them to follow after them the teaching and isolate it. And they're the ones who say, oh, just be my friend. Don't be every, anyone else's friend. Just be my friend. You know, and I'll take care of you. I really want to be one. Maybe you've had someone like that who says, oh, you don't need any other friends. You just need me. And be careful of that because they put others down and try to keep you to themselves saying that they only have your best interests in mind. And their intentions are selfish and they only wish to use you for their personal gain. Think about the salespeople and the, or those exclusive memberships, you know, oh, you need this, you know, uh, you know, I'll help you all along the way. They get you hooked. They give you, they, they sell you something and then goodbye. How do they treat you before and how they treat you after? And it's more than customer service. Here we have the aspect of, of what it means to understand the relationship with Christ. Because it's the same way for churches, it's the same way for groups and friends. But I want you to understand, 
It needs to be a consistent, and even yourselves, as believers in Christ, how we can live consistently. Because what I've seen in society is that there are those who say, oh yeah, we want people to come to Christ. We want people to come to Christ, and then guess what? After they come to Christ, we ignore them. And there are those who just say, you know what? They don't care about the individual. And to really care about people, that's the hard part. Now granted, there's some who, you know what? They aren't going to pay any attention to you. They don't want any spiritual things. And sometimes we want to waste our time with those individuals. But we need to care about the individual. And that's been a fault of sometimes believers that, oh, we only care about if they come to Christ and we don't care about the person. Because leading them to Christ is, is part of it, but also their spiritual growth and development. Look at this. Here's an example. Paul, he says, hey, guess what? I know you came to Christ, but guess what? I care that you also stay with Christ. You know, as a parent, many of your parents, if you just had your children say, okay, I raised you, guess what? You're out of the house. You know, we still pray for them. You still care about them. Sometimes you have to allow them to make hard choices and fail, but also you want them to do well. Now, there's those, especially dads, who want to live vicariously through their, their children. You know, oh, I want you to be what I couldn't be. I want you to do this or that. But as a spiritual parent, and that's what we look at next as we move into. So look at uh, the next one is not only the friend, enemy, these relationships, and then the parent. And a key element of a parent is love. You know, they love you when you, you don't love. A parent loves a child when the child doesn't love back. A parent loves a child when they sin. A parent loves a child when they're doing well. They want their child to turn around. But Paul says, I'm in pain over your actions. You're causing me grief. I'm in physical pain, labor pains. And it says that, uh, you know, interesting, he gives this example because I'm sure would have witnessed that. But also, you know, as you think about having a child without any epidural and uh, just at any time, but there's pain involved, and we understand that. But here, he says, I am in pain over the actions of what you have done. Also, he wants the previous position for them to turn back to Christ. And he says in verse 19, he says, My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. It also says in another text where it says, verse 19, My children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you again. And what he means by that is that, that you return to Christ, that Christ is made eminent in your life, that you understand the position that Christ has. Come back to Christ, that he is center. And that's what often happens is that, that we lose focus of our relationship with Christ. The person who follows after, moves away from Christ, takes their eyes off of Christ and looks at the world, looks at, oh, what they want, maybe, and they think, oh, well, I don't want to end up, you know, Christianity is boring. Christianity has no benefit to me. But then all of a sudden, they, they realize the struggles of the world. They don't have anything to turn to, and they realize, wait a second, there is no balance. There is no center. There is no purpose. Why am I here? And that's why even depression, suicide, the dangers are that, you know, dealing with those understanding that you are made in the image of God and there's value, but also that Christ cares about you. 
And so here he says, Paul wishes to be present to regain their trust and credibility, where he states and says to them in verse 20, and says, I would like to be present with you now and change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Interesting, because if you think about someone who has let their child go off, and maybe they're going through a difficult time, you want to be with them. You want to help them. You want to correct, hey, wait a second. Let's come back into a right relationship to show you what you're doing wrong or what is taking place. And then literally Paul, and I appreciate his honesty because Paul says, I'm perplexed. I don't know what to do with you. And that's where understanding is the basis is of prayer because you can't do anything. Sometimes you have to allow that person, whether it be a family member or a friend, who's turning back to go on their own and, and allow them to be in God's hands. But our role and responsibility is to pray. There's nothing physically we can do. That's why, if you think about it, when a person is in the hospital, that's the great equalizer. And what I mean by that is when someone is in a hospital room, in a bed, there's nothing you can do physically to benefit them. You can pray for them, but you can't go, oh, you know what? Well, you can try to help out with their home or with anything. You can do that, but you can't help them personally. Like, oh, let me give you a shot of morphine. That'll help you. No, they don't let you say, here, you want to give them some medications? Let me give you this drug. This will take away anything that uh, will, your memory. Let me uh, take away your illness. Oh, let me allow you to use my skill saw and surgically remove that tumor that you have. I don't think they're going to let you do that. But the whole point is, is that there are times where God has to put someone we care about in a position where we can't do anything except pray. And sometimes you can't even physically be there. Spatially, you're removed from the situation, and all you can do is pray and encourage them. We cannot fix people. And that's the challenge. As we arrive at this point, we must pray and give our situation over to God and trust the Holy Spirit, either to change the person or us. And then the next slide, just to close on this. The sovereignty of God is the peace that directs our future. We can only remind people of what God has done in the past to encourage people to trust God in the future. But I'll be honest, there is a faithful record. And the longer that you've been a Christian, you're going to see what God has done in the past is going to be a foundation for reminding you that you can trust Jesus Christ for our future. Shall we pray?